Well, life forces us into a journey of emotions, doesn't it? From day to day and hour to hour almost. And so in a room like this, there's a variety, I'm sure, of every type of emotion. Some are happy, some are sad. Some are rejoicing, some are in mourning. Some are frustrated with great challenges. Some are dogged by sin. But one thing we must consistently do regardless of how we are emotionally feeling, and that is praise God. And we do that because common to all of us, where does our help come from? We lift up our eyes to the hills. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so we praise him. It is a constant in our lives. We praise him because it is there when we meet with our God that he helps us and heals our hearts, strengthens us and encourages us, comforts us, reminds us that we are his own and that he loves us, that he bought us with an incredible price. This morning I want to continue on in our series in Galatians. We pick up now at sort of the practical side of the epistle, the letter. The first three chapters are very much doctrinal, although there's plenty of doctrine throughout. But in some ways when we get to chapter 4, 5, and 6, the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying, so now what? How should you then live? light of your understanding of what is the truth. I have a a friend in the Lord who is a a large, boisterous, and um, man who's filled filled with the love of God. He loves to come up to you and say, aren't you glad to be saved, brother? You know, he's one of these Really, I mean, he's a huge guy. He's like 6'4". In a, in a, he's, his name's Ralph Hamingi. You probably Somebody probably knows him because our community, Christian community, is so small. But he loves to greet me with that. Every time I ever saw him, he, he was in our church in Chatham, and now he's pastoring himself. But he, Aren't you glad you're saved, brother? And then, um, of course, I, I grew up and was somewhat mentored under the... Um, uh, the, in connection with Dr. R.E.J. Brackstone and, and uh, he loved to say that uh, uh, aren't you glad you're saved you know and, and, and um, sometimes depending on the mood you're in and the emotion that you're in you're like I'm not sure <laughs> I, you know of course I've never felt like that but I know some of you might have like I don't know how to answer that question and why like how can this guy be Every day of his life, aren't you glad you're saved, brother? And slaps you on the back as hard as he can. Sometimes, in truth, we are very frustrated about our salvation. And we feel very defeated. And that can go on for long periods of time. And in fact, we wonder about our salvation and we wonder about the benefits of our salvation and we wonder whether or not we really are glad to be saved. Are we supposed to be? Because life just doesn't seem to be unfolding in the way we had thought that it might. 
And when we're honest with ourselves, we realize, well, God hasn't changed, and, and the power of God is the same. And, and salvation is, is, is the same. And, but how come, how come in my life I'm so frustrated and defeated by sin? I look at someone else and hear testimonies of God's great provision, and they're walking with God and celebration and happiness and going around slapping people on the back saying, aren't you glad to be saved, brother? What's the difference? Same God, same salvation, same Christ. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 is going to tell us that the difference is quite simple, although very, very um, uh, effective or or, um, it collides with our life in a very meaningful way. He's going to tell us that it's the difference between whether you handle your salvation as a slave or as a son. Say, well, that didn't clear it up for me. That's okay, because the text is going to clear it up. Would you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, please, if you're not there? Actually, I want to start at um, the verse right before in chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, by the way, you're in a, a great place this morning if you have never met Christ, you don't know him, you can come to know Christ right here today. You can give your life over to him. But the proposition that's put forth in the text here is to those who know Christ, to those who've come to know him, to those who belong to him, what should you expect in your life? If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise Note that, because we're going to really unpackage that this morning. What you have. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, who is it that you are ter- how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Now, I want to um, say at the outset here that um, while the terminology to describe our relationship with God is as sons of God, 
I want you to understand, as we explained before the summer, in a dual gender audience, that this is not about gender in its reference. This is about status. And uh, to be called a son of someone in the uh, time of the Bible was to be declared in that family to have the highest of status. And so, ladies, I don't want you to feel in any possible way that, that God is somehow uh, elevating the, uh, the, the male gender and ignoring the female gender. It's quite the opposite. What he is saying to all of us is that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you belong to Christ, he puts you into his family and elevates you to the highest status possible. It's not about gender. And... Um, Unfortunately, some modern trans, uh, moderner translations, or more modern, I guess is the right English. I guess there's some teachers here that matters too. The, uh, <laughs> don't let your kids listen to me. But anyway, so the, there's some more modern translations that are, that are tra- changing these words to children in some effort to try and make this more palatable to the ladies. But in fact, it undermines the theology and the truth of the, and the greatness of what this is stating. This is stating, and, and you need to embrace this in your heart and love this and cherish it, that God brings you into, your, into his family, regardless of what gender you are, and gives you the highest possible status as one of his children. That's what it's talking about. So that's the context with which we are embarking upon this and grants you an inheritance. So let's unpackage this a little bit. So what have you inherited? Well, if you belong to Christ, then it says here in the text, in verse 29, you are Abraham's seed. You've been brought into the family of Abraham, the family of faith. Abraham is the the representative head of those who are the people of God. It has nothing to do with nationality. That he was a Jew is, it does not negate, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with nationality, it has nothing to do with gender, it has everything to do with relatedness to God. You've been brought into the family of God, and the representative head of that family of faith is Abraham, and you are now heirs according to the promise. Now, what is this inheritance? Is it money, which is what we're used to with respect to inheritance, or power, or influence? Well, no, it's an inheritance based on, it says here, the the promise. We have to understand what the promise is then. What is, that that gives us the definition of the scope and the, the nature of this promise that is granted to us. So what is it? Well, if we were to look in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and, and throughout uh, the, the development of, of the understanding of this promise throughout the scripture, we would realize that, that Abraham was promised that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. And, and Paul writes to us on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit earlier on in Galatians in chapter 3 that it was singular seed that through Abraham's seed, singular, referring to someone, all the nations will be blessed, which means us as well. And that seed, as the New Testament on packages, is Jesus Christ himself. It's the great promise that God the Father would send his Son, would send Messiah, who would come and redeem us from the slave market of sin and self and bring us and purchase us into his family. That's our inheritance that we have received. 
It's not, a, it's not money, it's not power and influence in the sense of the worldly way of that. But in fact, it's about having Christ. This amazing inheritance to us is the fulfillment of God's promise to man, which is that God gives people himself. There is no greater inheritance than that. Because what comes along with that is everything that God has and is. We have been granted the inheritance, which is God giving people himself. It's a repair of what went haywire in the Garden of Eden. It was, as you leaf through the pages of Scripture, you realize that, that this is always the great plan of God, is that he would be with us, that he would dwell with man. And, and as he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, in unobstructed relatedness, um, as, as God the Father, God creator with Adam and Eve, and, and enjoyed that sweet communion and fellowship That's what God longs for, and that's what our hearts long for. That's what we were made for. Every single human being has a God-sized hole in their heart, and they're never, ever satisfied until they find God. And and God is, we were always designed to be related in relationship with God. And that's why at the very end of the book, at the very end of the Bible, it declares in the greatness of the consummation of all that Christ will bring us, and now the dwelling of God is with man. There will be no more tears, no more uh, crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death. For the old order of things has passed away, and behold, all things have become new. This is, this is the great plan of God. And so the inheritance is precisely what God has always wanted for us, his, crea- his, crea- his greatest creation, mankind. And, and this is what this inheritance is. And sadly, in the context of this particular passage, and in the reality of our lives, we are not enjoying the inheritance that God wants us to have. And Paul sets out here to explain why and to explain the corrective. So the question that begs to be asked this morning is how's your inheritance working for you? Are you a slave or are you a son? Uh, According to verse 1, it is possible to have the inheritance, the whole estate, and not be benefiting from what you have. Now, Paul also sets out here that some people are not benefiting from it because they may not even have it. That's why he says at the very end of this particular section of verse 11, I fear for some of you that maybe I've wasted my effort on you, that that maybe I told you all of this truth, I, I introduced you to Christ and his reality, but you've never embraced the truth, and you don't belong to the family of God. So there are two possibilities that, in, in, in the sense that you're not enjoying the inheritance. Either you have, are still functioning as a slave, which we've got to correct today, or you don't have Christ at all, which we need to correct right now, because you need to invite him to come into your life and, 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 and have your life and transform you and forgive you of your sins. But, so Paul sets this before us as the possibilities. But he says to us, because you are a son, if you belong to Christ, Because you are a son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The father at salvation has dispatched the son of God into your very heart. 
which is the very center of your emotion and will and decision-making place. It is the place where you commune with God or don't commune with Him. And God has sent His, His Son, the very Spirit of Christ, has been dispatched to dwell in your heart. This is an amazing thing that God has done for us. And this qualifies us to be called sons of God. Christianity is a new way of living by faith through an intimate, indwelling relationship or relatedness to Christ, the Son of God, very God himself. Now, um, that's the way we're supposed to enjoy our inheritance, and that's how we can enjoy our inheritance. But the problem is here, he says, that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different than a slave. The problem with many of us is we're not enjoying the resident power of Jesus Christ in our life. But rather, we are continuing to live in the way we lived before we came to know Christ. Or we've drifted away from the way we used to live with Christ. And we've turned back, as Paul says, we've turned back to these old elementary principles. Now, what's he talking about here? He's basically saying that if you are trying to live for God by keeping the rules of the law through self-effort, you're no different than a slave. You've not, allow, you've not allowed yourself to graduate to the grace of God. Now, um, he presents here for us an illustration so it can help us. Most of us understand the nature of inheritance. In fact, most of us are hoping we inherit a gazillion dollars someday, aren't we? Is there anybody in here not hoping for that? I'm looking at my family tree. I'm not hoping for it. It's not going to happen. But, but we all live hoping for an inheritance. And, and, and some of you perhaps have, have inherited something, or you've heard of someone who've inherited. Perhaps some of you perhaps inherited uh, a, a fortune when you were six years old. Because this is the picture that he's painting for us here. Now, now here's the deal when you inherit something when you're six years old. What you want to do in your little heart of hearts, because you have everything now, is you want to go to Toys R Us. You want to buy the store out. And so as you're on your way to get on your little bicycle to go over to Toys R Us, someone taps you on the shoulder called the trustee or guardian and says, "Uh, excuse me, but you actually don't have any access to your fortune. You have to come through me. And uh, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, your forefather uh, put in the will that you only get a dollar a day. Until you're 21 years of age. You're like, well, that stinks. What kind of an inheritance is that? And of course, when you're six years old, 21 is like forever. So you're miserable because you have this great inheritance, but it's not benefiting you at all. You don't have any more toys today than you had yesterday. And it's just driving you crazy. So you're moping about it. The Apostle Paul says... Way too many Christians have the inheritance, the whole deal, have it all from God, but they're still living and putting themselves under a lifestyle of guardianship or trusteeship 
so that they don't have access to the benefits of the inheritance. So sin is just ravaging their lives. They're frustrated because they're not being formed more and more like Christ. And basically when someone says to them, aren't you glad you're saved, brother? They're like, well, not really. It's not working for me. So what is the individual doing? What is the actual practical reality of living like that? He says here that you're actually living under the basic or elementary principles of the world instead of embracing the power of the Spirit of Christ. It's worlds apart. It couldn't be more different living that way. You see, living that way is the way you used to live before you knew Christ. You used to used to try and handle your behavior by your own personal strength and self-effort and used to try to modify your behavior. I'm trying to be a better person. I'm reading self-help books. I'm, I'm going to Tony Robbins conferences who's trying to tell me how to be upbeat and happy all the time, be successful in business and make a fortune. I'm, I'm relying on the elementary or basic principles of this world. Well, how's that working for you? Well, it's not working very well. It certainly doesn't have the power to defeat sin. That's the problem. And so scores of Christians said yes to Jesus, walked down an aisle at a church one day or at a camp as a teenager or whatever, and are living with sin that's completely destroying and devastating their lives, and they're not more like Christ today than they were back then. Is because they're trying to actually run their life on the basis of self-effort, physical determination and willpower, accountability, the basic elementary principles of this world. The problem, as Paul points out, is this style of life, religious self-help, is weak and miserable. That's the terminology he uses in verse 9. Those basic principles are weak and miserable. They're weak. They're weak because they can't bring forgiveness. You can't get forgiveness from, for your sins by choosing a self-effort to reform. And they're weak because your self-discipline, and you already know this, is no match for the onslaught of sin that waits to take you out day after day. You sin, you ask the Lord to forgive you. You feel really bad. You never want to sin again. You sin next Tuesday, the same thing. You're sorry. You don't want to sin. You've asked God forgiveness. You sin Thursday. You ask God, please help me. You're, you're trying. Well, I'm going to just try and self-discipline myself. Doesn't work. You can't. You, they're weak. They don't. Their uh, principles of this world are not strong enough to combat the incredible, powerful onslaught of wickedness in your life. If it could, Christ died on the cross for nothing. He came for nothing. He settled in your heart for nothing. You didn't need him in the first place. But you know you do. You just don't know why you're not benefiting from the inheritance. And they're impoverished or miserable, he says. And they are so because 
You can't create enough of a variety of self-help and self-discipline to take care of the amazing um, diversity of wickedness that is going to come into your life. You, you can't, you won't read enough books. You can't find enough conferences to help you with this. And so what it invariably does is we, it leads us to some sort of artificial legalism in our lives to try and combat it. And Paul writes in verse 10, so you start observing special days and months and seasons and years. What's your way of combating it? You, you artificially declare certain times or places or things uh, sacred or secular. You go into the, the human behavioral management mode. So I'm going to start declaring certain things sacred because, well, at least there's little pieces of my life maybe I can get victory over. So, so for an hour and a half, I'll go to church every week and, 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 and I'll come here and I'll, 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 for a few moments, not be looking where I shouldn't be looking. I won't be doing what I shouldn't be doing. I'll, I'll be pretending that I've got it all together and I'll be all dressed up and, and I'll look really holy and sanctified and I'll talk spiritual and everybody will think everything's okay in my life. But I really know that on Monday, I'm going to really mess up. And I hate that about myself. And surely Jesus has something better for me than that. Yeah, he does. He has a whole inheritance of his power and presence and influence and impact in your life. You're not accessing it. Here's what happens. You start hoping that laws, rules, or elementary truths, or self-discipline that can only reveal sin will give new creation life and will change us. And that's spiritually disastrous. All the rules in the Bible can't save you. Can't grow you. All they can do is tell you how bad you are. And that's the purpose so that you'll turn to Jesus Christ and stop relying on yourself and learn that you can't rely on yourself and you have to rely on God. And and so there's three things that we kind of fall into as patterns here that I really want to practically present to you because the only way out of this is to know what we've been doing wrong. And there are three general things. There, there are more, of course, but there are three general categories of things we try to do to manage our lives, to succeed and be effective, that are totally ineffective and don't work. Strategies of the defeated, strategies of the miserable, strategies of the frustrated. And the first is we... Um, We'll try to make progress by selectively choosing to turn back to the easier rules. Easier rules for us personally, which don't produce deep change. I I mean, the first thing we start doing when we're really trying to manage our own lives and see that sin is really kicking us and beating us and, and we're frustrated about our spiritual walk and we're frustrated that we're not really growing in Christ is we thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, 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 get, I'll really get serious about certain rules. But the rules that we get serious about are the rules that kind of come easy to us. So we take a look and we say, well, you know what? I had a great victorious week this week. I didn't murder anybody. 
You know, I basically don't find that a very hard rule to keep. Or, you know what, I didn't steal from anybody this week. That's an easy rule for me. Well, of course, stealing in the way we want to describe it ourselves. There are a lot of ways to steal. I'm really excited about the fact that I didn't commit adultery on my wife this week. Look at me. I can keep the rules. I can be more like Jesus. But there are other ones. What about coveting? Wow, I was really ticked off when my neighbor got a new van this week. Like, where's my van? Or, or we, or we uh, misrepresent one another. Because that's a hard one to keep. Especially when we're trying to get ourselves out of deep weeds. And just when we think we've got it going because we're keeping certain rules, we're really moving along, Jesus comes up and says, I want you to take all that you have and give it to the poor. Don't you hate when he shows up like that? Like, what? I've been keeping all the rules. Well, there's this first one. You will have no other gods before me. And apparently, the fact that you're having trouble giving all your money away when I ask you to, I guess you have a a God in front of me. So much for trying to keep um, a few rules, because we only pick the easy ones. And that doesn't produce deep change in our lives. We try to run our life on rules rather than relying on God. The second one that we really dig into, and I've touched on this already, is that we try to be spiritual by deciding what is sacred and what will be secular. So what we do is we say, well, I'll I'll go to church, I'll, I'll, I'll wear my church uniform, I'll bring my Bible even though I haven't looked at it all week, but I'll bring it to church. And let's see, what else? Of course, Sunday's sacred. Monday isn't. That's secular, so I can kind of do whatever I want to on Monday. And, And I'm a pretty good Christian. And sin is still just driving into my life. And the reason is quite simple, because the Lord Jesus Christ never asked us to create secular and sacred. He never said, I'm going to be impressed with you because you can, you can uh, somehow live for me or pretend to live for me in a few sacred places, in a few sacred times, in a few sacred ways. See, when, when God said to us that, that I dispatched the spirit of my son into your heart as your inheritance, he, he meant that, uh, that all of your life is now sacred because since when have you ever gone any place without your heart? When have you ever done anything without your heart? Where, where is there any space that you can go where you don't take your heart? You see, God said in his great wisdom that, that everywhere you are, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to be making a difference in your life. I'm going to be bringing deep change to your life. It's all sacred for the believer He's always Lord, and he's Lord of always. The third thing we try to do is we try to fight lion strength sin with fly swatter weapons, and we're going to get beat down big time. 
this is the reason sin wins in our lives so regularly. Because we're employing the basic principles of this world. Strategies, disciplines, obstacles, self-effort, and sin comes raging back to us. Because what we are trying to settle on is behavioral modification by our own strength instead of transformation of our hearts by God's strength. And that separates the joyful, victorious Christian from the incredibly frustrated one. I want to get specific with you guys this morning. The problem is, in something like, for instance, the sin that grabs hold of guys, pornography, the problem with trying to attack that by a behavioral modification strength. See, here's what we try to do. Say, okay, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn the TV off. I'm going to shut my computer. I'm going to get an accountability partner or several accountability partners, and I'm going to take care of this thing. Well, you know, that's no different than what uh, your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus would employ. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with those strategies. In fact, you probably have to employ those strategies. But they're not going to take away the sin of pornography. And here's why they aren't. Because it's not the pornography is the issue. I mean, God wired us to desire sex. It's what we have now done with God's amazing and wonderful gift. And by by finding that we're now being slaughtered by pornography or alcoholism, you name, you, you, you put, you fill in the blank, you fill in your blank. The reason that the onslaught has come upon us is, is not because of the, 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 the issue itself, it's because as we, as we get slaughtered by sin, we realize that, wait a second, this is, um, how, did, how did my heart get so far away from God that I'm here? How, how did I get, how did I, the, the, the sin that, that slaughters us can't be taken care of at the surface level whereby we just do a few human strategies. What, you close your computer? You close that computer for 10 hours, you're going to open it up again. You think you're going to close the TV for the rest of your life? You're not going to do that. And your accountability partner, you're going to lie to him like crazy. None of that stuff's going to change anything. It's an emergency message to us when sin continues to slaughter us that our heart is deeply, deeply in trouble. And unless we recognize that, we're going to continue to try and mop up the sin in our lives, dust it up, come to church and look okay, but be incredibly frustrated in our Christian experience and not grow more and more Christ-like. The only way I can explain, I mean, pornography is likely a a sign or symbol of deeper issues like shame or guilt or childhood trauma or things like that. Do you think that shutting your computer, turning off the TV and getting an accountability partner can fix that stuff? Or whatever you're battling not possible. That's why Christ died on a cross. 
to rescue us, to heal our hearts at the deepest, deepest level. This is root stuff. The, the sin itself is just a surface issue that, that, that alerts us to the fact that our heart is incredibly damaged and broken. You can't fix that with basic elementary principles of this world. This is the great message of salvation. This is the great message of the power of the Spirit of Christ being dispatched to our hearts that we have to offer the world. Is what Christ can do for us. Let me illustrate it this way. It's an old illustration that I stole from Art Pink. If you know Art Pink, anybody know Arthur Pink? You ever read any of his stuff? Okay. So I could have taken credit for it. Ah. Yeah, well, somebody's listening online and they'll say, Art Pink said that. Anyway, I come home from my vacation. My yard is a disaster zone. I'm serious. This is a true story. I'm not making this up now. It was a disaster. I mean, it was like pasture land. I'm looking at it and I'm like, what in the world? Cows wouldn't even want to hang around in this yard. This is horrible. So I thought, well, you know, weeds all over. I mean, there was stuff growing in that yard I'd never seen before. So I'm like, well, I can, I'll fix this. I just cranked the lawnmower out, just fired it up. I said, I'm going to turn this yard into grass just like that. So I took the lawnmower out, and I I cut that grass. I'm cutting those weeds down. Neighbor comes across, what are you doing? I'm killing weeds. And I'm just mowing the thing down, and all of a sudden I stand back on my sidewalk, you know. After it's all done, I'm like, look at that. I got my yard back again. This thing is looking, it's green. It's all uniform size. I didn't see a weed anywhere. Four days later, we're talking pasture land again. It's, it's all grown up. It's all ugly. It's all horrible. What's the deal? You, you, can't, you can't fix weeds by chopping their heads off. You can't do something mechanical to your sin. You can't, you can't by your physical determination and self-will, decide, I'm going to defeat sin. It's not going to happen. The roots are still there. And it's just going to pop back up and you're going you're to spend your life chopping it down, going to church and being frustrated with your experience with Christ. You've got to kill the roots. You've got to nurture that grass. You've got to love your yard. You've got to water that thing. You've got to say, I love you, grass. You've got you to have a relationship with that yard. And then, maybe then, This is precisely what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this spiritual lesson. You're going to chop the head off of the sin and keep facing the ill effects, defeated? Or are you going to finally go to the place where sin starts? It doesn't start on your computer or on your TV. It starts in your heart. And that is where God moved to when you became a believer. Now, isn't that good news? Because that's the place that something can be done. And so the Apostle Paul says here, here's what you need to do. You need to recognize that because you are sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son into your heart. And now it's the spirit, the same one, the same Jesus, who calls out, Abba, Father. So, so here's the spiritual graduation component that will move you from actions that bring death and frustration to the spirit who brings life to you. It's a new instinctive drive to commune with God. It's the same thing you've got to do in your yard. You've got to actually put some effort into the relationship you have with your yard. Now, the combat of this is not to cut off the, uh, the heads of all of this stuff with some sort of physical actions, but rather to nurture your relationship with Abba, Father. This is what Jesus taught us. He calls out to his father. He communes with his father. Everything's about his father. He's, his desires, his will, his purpose. He seeks to nurture his relationship with his father. That's the instinctive drive of every Christian is to call out to God, oh God, help me. I can't defeat this. I can't win this battle, but you can. And what does that mean? It means praying. It means praying in the will of God. It means praying without ceasing. It means communing with God through his word. It means getting to know more about him, experiencing him, learning about him, understanding the nature of him, what is his character, understanding the relationship that we have with him, and spending my time and passion and energy all in in, in efforts all about God. Loving him, enjoying him, respecting him by obeying his word. And when we do that, when we nourish and nurture the relatedness of Jesus who is living at the very core of our soul. Our soul gets healthy and a healthy soul says no to sin. That's how you win it. That's how you win this battle. There's no other way. I know of no other way. The Bible teaches no other shortcuts. There's no quick fixes. There's no self-helps. There's no conference where I can stand up in front of you and say you can fix this by a few mechanical things and a couple of accountability partners. It ain't going to happen. As D.A. Carson calls it, it's the grace-driven effort of a heart that is finally frustrated with not enjoying all of your inheritance and benefits. Let me close this way. It means that as heirs now, you enjoy the full estate of everything that God has. Every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3. It means that you are enjoying the fullness of God's power. You are enjoying the completeness of his love. You are enjoying the desires of his heart, which no longer incline you to seek to medicate the deep-seated issues of your life with external things. But rather, God alone heals and helps and nourishes your heart. Beloved, this is so basic and so fundamental to Christianity. This is what sets us apart. Everything else you can chase down, every other ism, every other style, every other, every other um, strategy is basic, elementary, human ways of the world. But we are talking about the resident power 
of, the, of God, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, the same God who called creation into existence, the same God who said, let light shine in your heart. And he will do it. I can tell you with assurance that I don't know of any Christian who has that kind of vitality going in their relationship with God who is also suffering from defeat in sin. It doesn't happen. God rescues you, changes you, transforms your heart. That's what this is all about, the transformation of our hearts so that our lives are changed, so that we are no longer trying to form Christ ourselves, but Christ is forming himself in us. And so we now enjoy the freedom from the guardian of rules because it can only teach us how bad we are and we don't enjoy the inheritance to be led by the abundant, life-giving spirit of Christ. I'll never forget the day I took the 69 Volkswagen Beetle for a spin by myself 40 years ago. I'll never forget the freedom of that. You know, the, uh, the days when you were being guardianed and trusteed over by your father as he was teaching you how to drive a car and he was watching over you and all you could ever do was wrong and you were always having to drive way under the speed limit and all that because, you know, he's watching over you and all that. I'll never forget the day when I took that cherry red Volkswagen Beetle 69 out for a drive. I'll never forget the day when my dad said to me, you know what, now you have your license, you've had your lessons and all that stuff, here's the keys, take the thing for a spin. I was like, freed! By the grace of my dad to go and enjoy driving instead of turn down this street, turn down that street, go that way, go back this way. It was like freedom! Freedom! I can go in whatever street I want to. I think I want to go left now. I think I want to go right. I think I want to put my foot on the gas now just a little bit more than he might have liked. But not too much. You know why? Not the wicked thing. Because my father had entrusted to me his inheritance. I didn't want to mess up on that. So I wanted to enjoy the keys anytime I wanted This is what God has offered to us. The lessons, the rules, and all of that brought you to an awareness that you needed to learn. You needed, you had some bad issues in your life. Now that you've turned to Christ and Christ has moved into your heart, live from your heart in the power of Christ, no longer trying to rely on what failed you before. And enjoy the defeat of sin in your life and the fullness of your inheritance by his amazing grace. Like a son, no longer a slave. That's what he wants for us. Our Father, this morning, I I just pray that we would be gripped by this afresh because we can get sloppy in these areas. And Paul writes, I... Why are you turning back to this stuff? Why would you turn back to to rules and regulations and, and elementary human basic things that can't change your heart? So, Lord, I pray this morning.
that we would settle for nothing less than the fullness of the inheritance that the abundant, life-giving Jesus wants us to have. Defeat of sin, victory over sin, and transformation into the image of Jesus. I pray, Lord, for us, for me, in Christ's name, amen.